I'm Alejandro Soto. And I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, April 4th, 2017. Coming up, I speak with Dave Sutherland of Boulder's Open Space Program and Melanie Hill of the Wild Foundation about a new citizen science project to track wildlife here in Boulder. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Yoga practitioners have long known that slow, rhythmic breathing can induce a meditative state. Breathwork also reduces panic attacks and controls pain during labor. But how has been a mystery. After all, breath is both automatic and controllable. For instance, you can hold your breath, but eventually you start breathing again. You unconsciously adjust your breath during speaking, singing, and exercise. So what is it about yoga breathing that increases relaxation? Seeking an answer, scientists at Stanford University focused on the brainstem. It's a part of the brain that controls automatic actions such as heartbeat and breathing. The researchers identified a small group of 350 nerve cells in the brainstem that communicate with the brain region controlling alertness and stress responses. Using mice as the test subjects, the team inactivated those brain cells. Using behavioral tests, the scientists determined that inactivating those cells induced a calm state in the mice without affecting normal breathing. The scientists suggest this brain circuit that leads to a feeling of stress when those cells are active might have evolved as a defense response to activate animals, including humans, when breathing is rapid. After all, fast or erratic breathing increases alertness and can cause anxiety. Conversely, Controlling the breath can produce calm. And while reducing stress through yoga breathing is mostly considered beneficial, a reduced response in this brain center may sometimes have a darker side. It's possible that too little activation in the brain region might contribute to sudden infant death syndrome. The Stanford study, published last week in the journal Science, highlights the complexity of our brains. Take a deep breath right now and think about all the brain regions that are working. Science, that bastion of mystery, a sanctuary from the dirty world of politics and partisan divide, right? Not so, according to new research. It appears that we are a divided nation, right down to the science books we choose to buy. A team of researchers found that people who bought a political book, and also ordered a book on a scientific topic, their political persuasion or allegiance became pretty clear. For instance, customers who bought a political book that adhered to a liberal viewpoint tended to prefer basic science, such as astronomy, physics, or zoology, when they also ordered a science book. Conversely, people who ordered a political book that was aligned with a conservative political viewpoint tended to pick a science book in an applied science field, like medicine, geophysics, or criminology. To decipher these political patterns that emerged in science reading, the study's authors sifted through a database of millions of online book purchases on Amazon and Barnes & Noble websites in the spring of 2013. They used the automated algorithms designed to sell more books to glean patterns of so-called co-purchasing. The authors, a team of social scientists from University of Chicago, Yale, and Cornell University, wrote that, quote, A possible interpretation of the study is that scientific puzzles appeal more to the left, while problem-solving appeals more to the right. Puzzling, isn't it? 
The Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics, which goes by the short name LASP, has a new mission scheduled to launch later this year. It's called the GOLD mission. The GOLD mission will directly image the boundary between the Earth and space, which occurs at the thermosphere-ionosphere boundary. The GOLD mission will study how the composition and data sites in the thermosphere and ionosphere respond to changes in solar activity. And since space weather affects the operation of Earth-orbiting satellites, this information is important for maintaining the satellite infrastructure that is integral to our daily lives, from communication to weather predictions. If you want to learn more, there's a public lecture about the GOLD mission at the LASP Space Technology Building tomorrow evening, April 5th at 7.30. Details can be found at lasp.colorado.edu and at howonearthradio.org. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Alejandro Soto. People often measure success as 15 minutes of fame or a blockbuster financial quarter. This focus on short-term results doesn't always build the skills needed to solve long-term problems, such as reducing disease outbreaks or maintaining species diversity. So some visionaries have created a playfully serious way to think ahead, and those ways include projects here in Colorado. Shelley is here to tell us more. The creator of these playfully serious projects is the Long Now Foundation based in San Francisco. Their most famous project is a clock. A big clock, around 500 feet tall. Its designers plan to protect it inside a cave, inside a mountain in West Texas. The clock will tick only once each year, go bong once a century, and once a millennium. It will send out a cuckoo. Its creators plan for it to last at least 10,000 years, but they're not doing it just to build a better clock. The goal of the Long Now Foundation is fundamentally to kind of foster long-term responsibility and think about the future in uh, much deeper terms. Alexander Rose, executive director of the Long Now Foundation, calls the enormous, slow-ticking timepiece an icon of long-term thinking. There are certain problems such as climate change, or education or things like that that could only be solved if you're thinking on a multi-generational or even longer time frame. And Long Now, the idea of Long Now was to uh, show some examples of projects on that scale. Some projects on that scale connect with Colorado. Take the endangered black-footed ferret. Near Fort Collins, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has successful breeding programs for these black-footed and black-masked ferrets. But when they breed in the wild, Black-footed ferrets are vulnerable to the old-world disease known as plague. The Long Now's Revive and Restore project is exploring how to genetically modify the ferret's DNA to resist plague. Long Now Executive Director Alexander Rose adds that Revive and Restore is also looking for ways to bring back the woolly mammoth. We're sitting on the cusp of one of the very first times in human history where we can do that. Uh, and so uh, that project has been pulling together different scientists as well as um, ecologists to figure out not only what species we could do, but what species we should do that would actually be helpful for the environment. Disappearing languages are another long-now priority. This century, thousands of rare human languages may disappear. One of them is Native American Arapaho, still spoken by William Seahare, an elderly member of the Northern Arapaho Language and Culture Commission, who was at CU Boulder recently and shared these words of wisdom. Ah, no. Which he translates for us. Okay. It is necessary to retain our language 
which is our identity. The Long Now is partnering with linguists and native speakers to preserve languages such as Arapaho online. The foundation also has created language decoder rings. Each of these palm-sized discs, made from long-lasting nickel, holds miniaturized language pages for over 1,000 languages. Much of the funding for the first Rosetta disc and the project that grew out of it came from the late Charles Butcher, who lived in Boulder. CU Boulder has one of the actual Rosetta discs, and archives director Heather Ryan has assisted with what's called the Rosetta Project. Ryan says that the Rosetta discs are a great thought experiment for long-term thinking. And if we ever lose our online experts, she says they may also be practical. Looking 10,000 years into the future, somebody could come across and pick up the fact that there is information etched on here and that we can then find clues to all of the languages of, of human civilization over time. To foster long-term responsibility, the Long Now Foundation sponsors talks with visionaries such as Dr. Larry Brilliant. The physician and epidemiologist is a former hippie and current philanthropist who helped the World Health Organization eradicate smallpox. The talks are available to anyone around the world, including Colorado, through their podcasts. Audiences at the San Francisco talks say that hearing these long-term thinkers gets them thinking about their future. Eventually, I want to make a difference in the world. We have to have a long-term view in order to have a long-term life. As for pessimists who wonder, what's the point of thinking 10,000 years ahead when the world might not survive another 10 months? Another member of the audience has an answer. <laughs> Makes you wonder, but you've always got to keep your eye on the future or else you'll be stuck. And you can't get anything done if you're stuck. By helping people care, dream, and do, the Long Now Foundation plans to make the world a better place for a long time into the future. For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Alejandro Soto. Boulder is launching a new citizen science project. The project, called Wild Boulder, will allow people in Boulder to use their smartphones to record wildlife observations, including photos, and share this information with local land managers and open space experts. To find out how this program works and how it will benefit the community, we have two experts here today, Dave Sutherland and Melanie Hill. Dave Sutherland is an interpretive naturalist with the City of Boulder's Open Space and Mountain Parks program, and Melanie Hill is Director of Communications for the Wild Foundation, which works to protect wilderness while balancing the needs of human communities. Dave, Melanie, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you. Thanks for having us. How about you give me a quick overview of this new project that your two organizations have put together? The Boulder County Wildlife Project was launched about a year ago by Boulder County Open Space, and they wanted to do this uh, to boost visitor engagement and help biologists track wildlife in the county. This is on iNaturalist, which is a citizen science um, online web platform, and people can upload their different wildlife spottings and observations. They do this um, with photos, geographic locations, species, names, and any other notes. Um, and so this specific project focuses on the entire county of Boulder. Um, yeah. It has sort of two parts to it, right? Uh, you guys have an app uh, associated with iNaturalist. Um, I got a chance to play around with the app myself. Uh, and uh, it appears to be a chance to take some photos. When So I'm walking around the neighborhood. 
uh, I see a mule deer. Uh, this is an actual example that I put in the system already. And I can take some photos of the mule and then identify where it is. Um, what other kind of information are you guys trying to, to gather? There's all kinds of stuff that we can get out of a sighting like that. You know, for example, yesterday, for the very first time this year, I heard a broad-tailed hummingbird fly over up at Chautauqua Park. And so I posted that, even though I didn't have a photo, I posted that on iNaturalist because it was April 3rd, and that was the first one I'd heard this year. That kind of data over time can be really, really useful to people as we, for example, track climate change. When do the first uh, migrants show up in a given year? And if it's April 3rd this year and it's April 5th next year um, or April 10th or something, we can track that over time and see if their patterns in when animals show up or when they're last seen. And that's just one example. So by recording where we see them, when we see them, how many we see them, and comparing that data with um, data points that people are collecting all across the world, literally, um, over time, we can track uh, changes in distribution, changes in migration patterns and timing, and all, just all sorts of things. I mean, I'm not sure people have even begun to mine all of the different things you can do. Clearly, you guys are looking at more than just the, the popular large animals, like my example. Is there sort of a limit to the type of uh, species you want to... Uh, to track, or is it just pretty much uh, completely open-ended? At this point in Boulder County, we're just tracking wildlife, so we're not tracking plants or fungi. On the other hand, the iNaturalist program, which is much bigger, broader, and global, tracks everything. So um, if you are excited about finding a particular wildflower, you can certainly post it on iNaturalist, and we would encourage you to do that. We're just not tracking it on Wild Boulder. And is there sort of any limitations to... Uh, I, I think I remember seeing something about uh, concerns about uh, giving too many details about sightings of uh, some of the larger animals like uh, bears. Some animals are really sensitive to human disturbance, and so we're concerned that if people find something, you know, it could be a larger animal like a bear or a mountain lion, it could be a nesting animal like a burrowing owl nest, uh, or an animal that just is sensitive to human disturbance like a northern goshawk. So if uh, and, and those are also animals that people really want to see. So if somebody were to find a burrowing owl nest and post that on iNaturalist, theoretically a whole bunch of people could all go racing out there to see the burrowing owl nest and disturb or drive away the burrowing owls. And so we're asking people if they find something that they think might be sensitive to human disturbance or that could draw a whole bunch of people to come and see that animal, either delay the posting for a few weeks or months uh, until the animal has moved on or maybe finished its breeding cycle. Or there's another option on iNaturalist where you can obscure or muddle the GPS point. It's, there's a geo-privacy setting, so if you found a great horned owl nest and you wanted to share it, but you didn't want to share exactly where it was, you could set the geo-privacy option to private, and it would muddle the GPS point so people would know the approximate location, but not the precise location to within, a, I think, a 10-square-mile area. So I love that. Not only are we protecting our own privacy, but it sounds like we're protecting the privacy of the animals. How did this collaboration between the Wild Foundation and the Open Space come about? And Melanie, in specific, also a chance for you to talk to us a little bit about what Wild Foundation does, because I think most Boulderites know about the Open Space uh, program here in Boulder, but um, may not know much about your foundation. 
Absolutely. So the Bob Foundation is a nonprofit. We're in North Boulder area. Um, we work to protect and connect wilderness, wildlife, and people internationally and on a local scale. Um, so we started working with the city um, on, you know, forming some type of a citizen science project. And we looped the county in because they already had this incredible Boulder County Wildlife Project on iNaturalist. And so by bringing all of our groups together, we've just made it, you know, kind of this relaunch. And it's been this incredible process where we're really trying to get it out to more people and get people to understand, you know, there's things in the city, but it stretches out to all of Boulder County. Um, and this is just a really great opportunity to connect Boulder res residents with this beautiful wild ecosystem that surrounds us. Um, so really by seeing the type of wildlife um, that shares the land with us, we hope that this project help us become better stewards of the land. Great. And um, how did you actually come to um, team up with Dave here to work on this project? So I believe it was the Resilient Boulder team um, that was um, really leading the charge on this citizen science project. So they looped the Wild Foundation in. We had been in talks with different departments there, um, heard about this, and of course we wanted to get involved. This is like one of my favorite projects we've been working on here. And um, everyone, you know, they sent out emails, I believe, to the rest of Open Space and just wanted to see who was involved and who wanted to get engaged in this project. And so now that you guys have this set up with the app, um, I believe you guys are doing a kickoff uh, celebration or sort of um, event this week, this Thursday. Do you want to talk to a little bit about that? Yeah, we're doing the event Thursday night at E-Town. Um, and uh, there's an online site you can go to. You, you really do need to get a reservation because there's just a capacity to E-Town. So uh, we would suggest going to wildboulder.org, which is sort of the project gateway website that will give you, help you set up an account on iNaturalist. It'll explain what we're looking for in terms of data. And it, Oh, and by the way, it has information about the event and how to sign up and come to the event. The event's going to have uh, booths from a number of different uh, wildlife organizations in and around Boulder County. We're um, going to have some speakers and some environmental films. It's just going to be a lot of fun. It's really something that uh, would be appropriate to all ages, and we'll be able to get you set up on iNaturalist and share some of what we're trying to do. Great. So when I was wandering through the, the Wild Boulder project on iNaturalist, I noticed that although you're just now officially kicking it off, uh, there are already a number of uh, observations that have been posted to it. Uh, sort of what kind of interesting things have you guys seen popping up contributed by uh, citizens of Boulder? Oh, all kinds of things. Um, I was uh, happily pleased to see a lot of people were documenting insect sightings, which um, frequently we tend to focus on the really, really big stuff. Um, but there are a lot, there's somebody out there who loves dragonflies. There are a lot of dragonfly sightings, there are a lot of butterfly sightings, and grasshoppers and beetles. So I was really happy to see that these tiny little animals were not being ignored. And then um, there were a couple of uh, interesting sightings of animals that aren't very common in Boulder or, you know, exciting or rare sightings. And those are certainly useful, but also the mundane stuff is really important, too. You know, which means robins and flickers and fox squirrels. Uh, are That data is really important to know what their distribution is, what they're doing. Um, and so I've seen a whole mix on the on the Wild Boulder website. So do you have any ideas yet how you're going to be able to use this, what hopefully will be a really wonderful growing database, uh, to help with our open space management here in Boulder? 
So we're looking into a lot of different options. Right now we're just in this data collection process. Um, ideally, you know, these observations are going to help our biologists, our naturalists, all of our open space staff within the county to understand what types of wildlife and species are coming into the land. And we want to be able to better protect them and um, help these species thrive so that we can have this healthy, intact ecosystem. And that, you know, all uh, Boulder, Boulder County residents can continue to enjoy it. Have you gotten any feedback about how people feel about being involved in this project? Do they enjoy it? Is it more of a, a, a task? Personally speaking, as a naturalist, it's, it's addicting. It's a little bit like um, Facebook for naturalists mixed with Pokemon Go for adults. I grew up as a collector. I, I collected butterflies and I collected fossils and I had a life list of birds. And this is a way you can do all of that online and share it with an international community. So there's a feature within iNaturalist where you can create a life list or you can think of it as you're creating your own virtual zoo or you can think of it as creating your own butterfly collection. But you don't have to to kill the butterflies. All you need to do is get a photograph of them and you can do the photograph with your iPhone using the app or, and what I prefer is I actually use um, a real camera, a nice camera and take the pictures and then you can upload them and you get much better quality pictures using a camera. So either of those things work. And um, so for me, it was a lot of fun to try to create a butterfly collection, how many you can get. We're hoping um, in the future to maybe do some contests or to do like a feature month, like May could be pollinator month and June could be migratory bird month. And we're going to encourage everybody on iNaturalist to get out and try to get as many pictures of pollinators as they can or as many pictures of migratory birds or, or whatever the month feature is. We might be able to have a contest for the most observations in a month or the greatest breadth of species for a particular observer. It, it's fun and can very much become a game. Well, and it sounds like you're really taking advantage of this burgeoning citizen science movement mixed with, uh, I like the game uh, metaphor. I also like the idea of what you mentioned, which is that we're sort of continuing the long tradition of, of collecting uh, specimens, but in a more virtual and therefore more humane and uh, um, a humane manner that's uh, more sustainable for the long term for our environment. And it was neat because when I was a kid collecting butterflies, I, you know, would collect the butterflies and kill them and pin them down in a box, and it didn't serve any sort of greater scientific uh, purpose. Th it was just for my own education. But with iNaturalist and with the wildboulder.org project, you are not only creating your own personal life list, which is kind of a, you know, maybe a personal goal, but you're creating a data set that scientists all over the world through time will be able to access. And so it's got this huge additional value of uh, serving a much greater cause. And, you know, I should have asked this earlier. So what is the area that you guys are, are hoping that Boulderites help uh, map out for you guys? We're really opening this up to all of the county. So anywhere, um, especially open space, we want to we want to focus on that area. But if there's different um, insect species that are being found in town, um, in urban areas, different birds, you know, we'd love to see them. But for someone like me who lives out in La uh, Lafayette, you would love to get uh, whatever sightings that I can find out there and, and that my neighbors can find. Absolutely. Awesome. So this is not a Boulder City only thing, although helped uh, sponsored by the Boulder, uh, the city of Boulder. But we want the entire county to get involved and have some fun with this. And uh, like you said, you guys are going to have some uh, future uh, competitions with it, which sound wonderful. So um, we've been speaking here with uh, Dave Sutherland of the City of Boulder, 
uh, open space program and Melanie Hill of the Wild Foundation. Thank you guys for coming out. This was a lot of fun, and I hope your kickoff goes really well and a lot of people get up involved. I uh, played around it with, with myself, myself just walking around the neighborhood, uh, uh, and it was a lot of fun, and uh, it's going to add a new aspect to my uh, weekly walks. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for so, having us. Uh, if you want to find out more details about this Wild Boulder project, you can go to wildboulder.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by myself, Alejandro Soto, and was engineered by Shelley Schlender. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Sean Lee's Ping Pong Orchestra. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender. And I'm Alejandro Soto.